Hi everyone, uh, welcome to the Play by Play podcast. I'm your host DC, and today I'm interviewing B plus Brian Cross. Uh, how you doing, man? I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. We can we can do the please pass the mic scenario, but I'm good, yeah. and I'm happy to be here in the uh, in the beautiful Armston House, Patrick Street, Limerick. It's great, beautiful, lovely day outside. All right, boss. Go ahead. Sorry, we're passing. We're only using one mic for this, so we had to pass it around and stuff. But yeah, shout out to Ormston House for helping us do it in here. Uh, but yeah, so uh, what what's it like, kind of coming back to Limerick uh, and seeing what's going on here compared to what's going on in LA with the hip hop scenes? Kind of like um, you know, we have artists out here like Denise Chyla, PX Music. What's it like, kind of coming back and seeing that here compared to what's going back on in LA? I mean, in some respects, obviously, it's very different. But um, in many respects, um, there's a lot of similarities. You know, I mean, it's really um, it's about like burgeoning social. Uh, spaces, social relations, and building kind of autonomous um, spots where you can kind of develop ideas, try things out, cultivate an audience. And somehow, you know, I mean, I left here 32 years ago and went to LA. And within a year, found myself becoming a regular at this little spot in South Central LA called The Good Life. Um which I was explaining to somebody is about the size of the canteen, you know, canteen. It's about that big. It's a tiny place. Health food store, no alcohol, nothing. And um, it was just, it was run by an old Black Panther. And uh, on Thursday nights, they had an open mic. And that open mic basically is what led to the development of, um, you know, Freestyle Fellowship, The Far Side, even Snoop. Um, Cube went there. Biz Marquis used to go there whenever he was in LA. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. And um, but even more impressive, actually, is that the first documentary by a young African American filmmaker is about the good life and about her time there as an MC. And she's gone on to become maybe the most important person in in filmmaking in the states now, which is Ava DuVernay. And really, it was at the good life that her you know, that that scene kind of cultivate her, cultivated her creativity and showed her a little bit of what was possible. And how does that compare to Limerick? Well, you know, there's plenty of spaces like Canteen and there's plenty of, you know, buzz and bubble and people supporting each other. And, you know what I'm saying? And and I think, I mean, I think that's the, 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 the key to this really is, is to, to be able to build a scene where people actually constructively come to each other and support each other and allow the kind of experiments that you know allows people to prosper like um like denise for example you know is it possible to think of denise without music generation without god knows without merley without the support of you know the whole community here it's not and something we need to be all proud of but it's also something we need to be actively engaged in so yeah it's cool to be back. It's cool to get invited. It's cool to be interested enough in something culturally that's going on here to where I feel like I could make a contribution or whatever. So, yeah. So, boom, bip. 
I find there a lot of relation in what you're saying because uh, obviously I go to music generation and obviously helps as well because that builds connections with artists, especially because it's kind of seeing, especially where Limerick is at the moment now in terms of music, because it's not just only hip hop scenes coming out of Limerick, you got a full on punk scene going on Limerick. So I'm just going to give a few shout outs here to my friends. So uh, 50 for Woman, Vicuji and... Um, I, I could mention loads of others, Owen Ryan too, Ben Young, Ali Crossbucket, all these legends. But um, like, and you have like a full on new shoegaze scene going on here. So it's really cool to see that all these communities are coming together. And also like, uh, especially where Ireland is at the moment, kind of seeing, you know, um, scenes going on in North Kerry, which I'm involved in with the Dollar Pickle Records and uh, what's going on in Dublin at the moment, especially with the uh, ED artists and uh, Courtesy and... Uh, I mean, with love, you know, all those guys, big respect to them. Uh, so it's kind of cool to see. Also, uh, I know you went to L.A. for school. So was that really where you kind of met these artists? The good life is where you kind of met these artists in collaboration with them. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, I went there to go to grad school in 1990. I was working at Frank Hogan's garage there on the Dublin Road. They had a video shop back in them days and I was working behind the counter after I finished NCAD and uh, yeah, I couldn't, couldn't hack it. I needed to get out and do grad school someplace. So yeah, I was accepted into Cal Arts, which is just north of LA, went to LA. And then while I was at Cal Arts then, I mean, I've been listening to hip hop since I was here. Obviously I've been listening to hip hop since like 83, 84. And then while I was in LA then, um, yeah, I was sort of initially kind of, once I was commissioned per se, but I was asked to begin a project and I started, yeah, I started um, photographing hip hop. And yeah, one of the first places I ended up actually was at The Good Life. And you know, it was one of them things at the time where nobody took it serious. You know, if you started doing a open mic night at, you know, the, the canteen or something in, in Limerick, you know, the first year, nobody would be taking it that seriously. And it was kind of like that, you know, and um, the people who went there took it seriously nobody else in the music industry wasn't paying attention and I happened to go there and I mean I have ears like everybody else and I was like wow this is really exciting actually you know there's no money there's no industry but what's being done is actually really interesting quite original so I started taking photos and then through that and the development of that project then um, it ended up in a, being you know published as a book which came out in 1993 or 19, yeah, 1993, I think, called It's Not About a Salary. And uh, yeah, it's a trip. I mean, that, that was completely unexpected. I didn't anticipate that I would become a music photographer out of it. But yeah, that's what happened. And was it true that you interviewed Easy e in that as well? And kind of, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Ah, I, mean, I, I, I mean, I interviewed Easy e I interviewed Dr. Dre, I interviewed, you know, whoever was anybody really in the LA scene at that time. Um, I interviewed Gil Scott Heron at that time. I interviewed Roy Ayers at that time. I interviewed, I mean, you know, Jesus, I don't know. I can't even remember, but a gang of people. Yeah, I was writing for a magazine at that time in L.A. called Herb. It was really because no one else was prepared to do it, really. It wasn't like I thought of myself as a writer or anything. Um, and I, then I'm, and obviously I, at that time I'm meeting, you know, people like Jeff Chang, you know, um, cats that were, figuring out Dave Tompkins, figuring out about uh, hip-hop and writing, Greg Tate, rest in peace. And, um, 
Yeah, but it was like a sort of deep immersion, you know, like I thought I knew something about the music when I came from here and I realized when I got there and started to dig in that like, yeah, like I, I, my knowledge of, you know, primarily African-American culture was very, very surface. Um, and, you know, I had an immense amount of work to do, to learn and to even be just become even moderately fluid, fluent in the language of it. Um, and so, yeah, it's life work. I'm still doing it, you know? So, but yeah, man. It was kind of like right place, right time as well, because you had a kind of, you kind of had gangster rap kind of, gangster rap kind of, um, not really, I mean, it never really ended in a way, but it was kind of like kind of the end of NWA in a way, kind of 91-ish, but also you had other scenes going out as well, like the underground, obviously you had the boom bap, kind of the G-Funk stuff as well. But um, yeah, it's true. I mean, none of those scenes or none of those genres have gone away per se. Um, you know, there's still plenty of G-Funk. There's still, you know, look at Battle Cat, for example. There's plenty of gangster shit being made to this day. To me, it was less important the genres as much as it was people that were doing things that were creating new kind of economic models for what you could do with music, new kinds of models in terms of genre, um, new kind of distribution models in terms of like people slanging tapes out of their cars, you know what I mean? Going to events like older, you know, older models that hark back to Sun Ra and people like that, that had been doing this kind of thing since the fifties and doing it really outside or away from the industry. Um, not that I always interface with the industry and, you know, I mean, Snoop would be a great example of this as somebody who took that entire world on his back and went into, you know, obviously Death Row was a independent um, to all intents and purposes. They were distributed by Universal, but they, they operated on their own. They paid their own bills and whatever. And it was just amazing. I was very lucky, really, to to be able to see that, to be able to come friends with Easy. I mean, I remember... The first time I heard the first Easy E album, someone gave me a dub in 1987, I think. Um, I remember being on Glentworth Street with a Walkman and someone gave me a dub and I remember putting it into my Walkman and listening to it all the way out to the Dublin Road and my mind was just completely blown and it's kind of crazy. Like two or three years later, I'm doing an album cover for this dude, you know what I'm saying? Like it was, it was really, maybe it's like three or four years later, but like... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, when I, I remember when I first heard it, I was just like, you know, this is some crazy shit. This is really, really, really exciting, you know, adrenaline-driven music. Really irreverent, really funny. And then you end up meeting the dude, you know, and then you end up even become friends with the dude. You know, and then before he died, I was teaching him how to become a photographer, you know. It's fucking crazy, and... and you know, yeah, I don't know, luck. I think you make your own luck, though, you know. Um, but, I mean, I, I come from Limerick, so I used to tell people I'm afraid to go anywhere. You know, I remember going to San Francisco the first time, and people would be like, oh, my God, you're working in Hunter's Point? And Hunter's Point at that time was, you know, it was like industrial area, but it was also working class black people, you know. And, uh, oh, my God, you go down there on the bus? Um, yeah, I go down the bus, fucking leave on the bus when I finish work. <laughs> I mean, I did, I just didn't, I had no, I don't know, I just reckon I was from here and it was like, 
fucking, I don't give a fuck. I mean, I'll walk through, you know what I mean? I'll walk through any neighborhood on the way home. Sure enough, I had trouble too, but nothing, you know, like no life-threatening situations ultimately. No real harm ever came to me. Got robbed a few times, whatever, but street taxes, that's what we used to call it. But, um, you know, like I come from here, so I just kind of had this sort of, I don't know, maybe some people would look at it as cavalier, but I have this kind of approach of being like, I mean, if people live there, I'm all right to walk through there. I mean, the 80s, I used to go to, to the north. I mean, I, wasn't, I never looked at it as like, oh, my God, you can't go there. So when I went to the States, it was the same. I made a lot of friends, and it made more sense to me, actually. I never really subscribed to the kind of great American project. Do you know what I mean? Like, to me, back in the 70s and 80s, all the good bands, when they went to America or started to have success in America, became really shit. So I always have this kind of crooked or hairy eye towards America. All the stuff that interested me about America was underground, contrarian, anti-war, anti-state. And so hip hop really fit into that. You know what I mean? It wasn't, you know what I mean? It didn't, it wasn't, didn't glorify American imperialism. It was very much against, I won't say against it, but it was like the model was very much from below. It was to represent people that weren't serviced by this model. And to me, that made sense. Jazz was that, hip hop was that, early, you know, rock and roll to its own to its own extent, or blues was that. And so, you know what I mean? And so it, for me, when I went there, then culturally it made sense to be around people that shared those kinds of values with me, as opposed to the kind of flag-waving, jingoistic... Well, either yuppies or even working class people that were listening to, you know, country music or Bruce Springsteen or that kind of shit. Not nothing against Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen is great, but <sighs> there's a kind of American whiteness that's just, I just don't subscribe to. You know, it's kind of pro-war, pro-military, pro, you know, it's all country built around this set of values that I don't subscribe to. So it's quite challenging to go live there, to work there, to build a life there. And so, yeah, it made, made more sense to me to go and at least spend as much of my energy as I could help him to, to grow and to disseminate, you know, a culture that felt closer to me, you know, it made more sense to me politically or conceptually or spiritually even, you know. Yeah, I find a lot of what you said here uh, kind of popular, not, re pop not really popular is the right word, but very kind of, Kind of like, especially Limerick here, because I know people who are like, why are you going to that street? That's very dodgy. And I'm like, why? Because I think there's a lot of like, not like a lot of inborn discriminatory discrimination that many people don't think that is discrimination when it is. Because I know, because many people say, why are you going on that area? There's, you know, members of the traveling community living there. Because I don't know, it's really hard to see that these people are getting just, just basically, straight up discrimination and that you have kind of middle class kind of yuppie-ish Irish people not wanting kind of trying to avoid those areas which is so sad to see which is just straight up racist and if you are that kind of person just fuck off don't listen to this just you know do something else but like like it's really sad to see that still the, not not only does it go on in America but it still goes on here in Ireland and it goes on in the rest of the world and also kind of what you're saying about kind of like, you know, hip hop, blues, jazz, having all this kind of 
kind of anti-state anti-imperialism i see that a lot of common with punk as well because to me hip-hop is pretty much kind of punk in a way there's a lot of comments even though they're very musically different they still have that kind of same how would you say kind of attitude but like there's still kind of loads of common that they have together which is kind of great to see because i'm a fan of both genres and styles but and then again i find it so ironic though because especially with uh, bruce springsteen with born in the usa that song is like anti-war and stuff it's, it's about a soldier who's being kind of about a young man who's being forced to be a soldier to go to vietnam and stuff and then you have like people in trump rallies busting it out when really it's just against the whole thing so i don't know it's very ironic to see that yeah i mean you know is a thing where you know, there's this thing called hegemony, and what it means is that there's a kind of dominant kind of ways of thinking that become kind of invisible, or we think of them as natural. And you know, ever since I was very young, our TV is dominated by American stuff, our yes. marketplace is dominated by American products for the most part. And I don't mean products necessarily as if they're made in America, but they're marketed, engineered, conceived of in the United States. And we don't really think of it as something that sells us a kind of lifestyle, not only a lifestyle, but also ways of thinking. And um, yeah, like what exactly what you said, you know, like class, obviously here is a very, very important factor. But it's when then when it's intercut with <clears throat> a kind of jingoistic, nationalist, kind of xenophobic ways of thinking about other kinds of communities, other ways of living, other ways of thinking, we end up in situations where yeah, people get very fucking insecure, often aggressive, violent, and we have ways of sort of explaining things to ourselves that um, don't really in the long term make very little fucking sense, you know. So, yeah, of course, I mean, these things existed in in, uh, in Limerick when I was growing up, unquestionably. Um both around race and around class and around ethnicity. Um, and I don't know, you know, but there's always been people that have subscribed to other ways of thinking about things and have been very active, thank God, um, in this. I was, you know, I was very fortunate when I was growing up to be mentored by people like Jim Kemi, for example. Um, a number of people that mentored me at, uh, at NCAD. And, and I just feel like, and, and and by punk rock, actually, you know, I mean, like some of the sort of I remember going to see Rude Boy by The Clash at the Carlton in like 1981 or 82 or something like that. And it was the beginning of the Rock Against Racism movement was in that film, you know, and uh, I'm being deeply moved by it, like kind of thinking like, Jesus, you know, this is this really speaks to the kind of values that I have and realizing, you know. Now, it's important to understand, I know there's this sort of argument about the kind of crossover between punk rock and hip hop. Um, and certainly in New York, you could make that argument to some degree, you know, that at some point hip hop went downtown and then downtown was where you had, CBGBs. you know, CBGBs and, and, uh, and, and you had like a whole sort of burgeoning punk rock DIY kind of scene there. But I think it's also important to remember that um, actually in terms of English punk rock, like the, the, the real close cousin was dub and reggae. 
And eventually, when The Clash did get to go to New York in 1980 and had those series of gigs on Broadway, um, yeah, I mean, they had Keith Haring and Futura and those guys painting backgrounds while they played the shows. They made The Magnificent Seven, which was a fucking, which is basically a hip hop song. And there was definitely a sense that, you know, the bridges were being built. But several years previous to that, um, amongst English, the English punk rock scene anyway, um, it was really about reggae. And it was really about the way that reggae as a kind of protest music and as a kind of disaffectedness that dreads cultivated where they were unaffected by Babylon. You know, they, they, they lived parallel to Babylon. They weren't trying to engage with modern capitalist, destructive, um, you know, devil, you know, devil Babylon practices. And for, you know, for, for a burgeoning punk rock movement, this was super, super important. And, you know, so you have The Clash doing covers of Junior Mervyn, Police and Thieves. You have, uh, you have, uh, you know, the, se- the second record to do a cover of, uh, first they do Police and Thieves and they do Armageddon Time, which is on the Bank Robber 10-inch uh, EP. Obviously, yeah, you're busting out the Bad Brains record. I got, I got one for you, though. You got to let me bust one on you first. All right. Um, but, you know, all that stuff kind of fed in. Um, so it, it didn't feel like, you know, often people say like, whoa, how did some guy from Ireland end up in L.A. photographing rappers? Like as if it's like I went to some fucking alien planet or something. But, you know, it wasn't like there wasn't there wasn't some degree of and they were as curious about me as I was about them. You know, I mean, they they you know, there there are a lot of crossovers. I was, my whole life is about understanding those crossovers. So. Anyways, let me play you a record real quick. Yes, crowd of people, when it comes to music business, you don't know so much of that sound, the number one sound, man. B plus, you're tough and rough. You know Mervyn says so.
I'm Anne Williams representing Soundtime Achilla Sound Original Dancehall Sound, that's Big Up B Plus, Massive and Crow. And Willie Williams is coming true to you. Bless it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, Chilla Dilla. Um, that was Willie Williams doing the all time, all time, all time, all time classic Armageddon sound um, or Armageddon time, um, famously covered by The Clash. Um, and prior to that was Rest in Peace, uh, Junior Mervyn doing the uh, Lee Scratch Perry produced um, Police and Thieves, obviously Mo Chilla um, version. Um, but yeah, I mean, part of the deal of getting to work in music and stuff is you get to find out little tr neat tricks like how to get specials out of Jamaica. And I was very lucky through a cat in Long Beach, California called JFX, who's very connected there in the world of making specials, who's a a clash DJ basically. And, um, yeah, I asked him if he could pull, I mean, I asked him, I gave him a few options, but he, these were the two he was able to pull for me. And, uh, yeah, some really special for me about being able to, you know, get two songs that were really the first two reggae songs I ever really heard. And I didn't even hear them by Jamaican artists. I heard them played by the clash. Um, and to have them, you know, revoiced with my name is some fucking, you know, that's some old, Small proper, proper, proper type of, you know what I mean? So, yeah, it's just thinking about the relationship between reggae and Jamaica and uh, and uh, hearing that music from my, my my days on the Dublin road, you know what I mean? Um, 
So it was nice to be able to share it. I know I, I, every time I play this shit up at Melody, people bug out because they're like, did he say your name? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> he said my name. Shout out yeah, shout out to the lads of a Melody. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in this idea of a uh, kind of uh, alternative economies, you know, and reggae does this very, very well. In fact, reggae music is developed out of situations like this where people would make one-off records that you could had to go to a certain place to hear it. And if you didn't go there, you couldn't hear it. It wasn't something that was mass distributed until much later. And, um, and, and, and one of the sort of beautiful sort of side parts of that economy is this idea of specials. You know, I'm, I work quite a bit with Damien Marley and yeah, I wouldn't say there's a month goes by where he doesn't go in the studio and cut a special for some clash or some crew or some radio DJ somewhere in the world. And it's a, you get paid a nice little chunk of money for that. So, you know, it's really cool. And yeah, it's one of them things that I like to like to bust out on people surprise them so anyways yeah man yeah you were saying while we were playing the record as well that was uh all were they all produced by uh lee scarch pervy rest in peace as well no 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 only the only the willie williams oh, sorry only the Ju uh, junior mervin um willie williams isn't willie williams is a it's a different it's a different system but yeah lee scratch is obviously another person who's super super important Never had a chance to meet him, but certainly I don't think anybody engaged in music in the last sort of 20 or 30 years, um, 40 years could uh, could imagine a music world that hasn't been impacted by his ideas, his creativity, um, his capacity to change the way we hear things, the way we think about things. Um, yeah, another one of the OG geniuses of, of uh, Jamaican music. Um, that we lost, sadly, along with a number, quite a number of others, actually. Toots Hibbert being another one that we lost during COVID. But yeah, uh, Lee Scratch, big, big, big shouts. Rest in power, man. I'm going to play another record here. And many people would agree with me. This would be like the ultimate description of um, punk meets hip hop with reggae and ska and dub. This is Bad Brains and this is Pay to Come.
what a fucking song that was paid to come by bad brains and uh yeah so that was kind of a great chat there with, with the connections with other genres with hip-hop as well um well so how did you first you were mentioning back earlier in the uh, earlier uh, you kind of discovered hip-hop back in 84 and stuff and i think you said in another interview before you would have to hook it up to a swiss radio station to hear or something like that oh no, <laughs> no. yeah radio luxembourg sorry not swiss i got mixed up there uh radio luxembourg to hear hip-hop and stuff yeah. but i also heard somewhere it was with public enemy as well yeah, uh, yeah i mean you couldn't really i mean you weren't hearing very much but on i mean i'm talking about pre 2fm um or what became known as 2fm later um it was difficult to hear contemporary, even pop music on the radio here. And we're on the West Coast, so, you know, it was pretty fucking ropey to get, like, BBC One or whatever. Occasionally you could get John Peel. Generally the signal was better in the winter. Not sure why, but the air was colder and the signal traveled further. So occasionally you could hear it. I remember even hearing, uh, occasionally you could hear, and it'd be better at night as well, of course. But um, I remember even hearing Westwood, early Westwood. Um, in you know, uh, out here, but when I was very young, I used to listen to Radio Luxembourg at night. I used to bring the old transistor radio into the bedroom, put it under the pillow, and, and listen to uh, Radio Luxembourg. But yeah, PE came here. I mean, Schoolie D came here first, and I guess that was like 87, I think, or 86, and he came on tour with. Big Audio Dynamite, which was the kind of offshoot group of The Clash, Mick Jones's offshoot group. And I went to see him at the SFX, and it was fucking amazing. And then I went to London to go to school, and I saw the Cold Chillin' Tour, and then I came back, and I saw P.E. at McGonagall's. Um, I remember Sinead O'Connor was in the, in the audience. I mean, it was really fucking some special shit. And it was so few people. I mean, McGonagall's was really a very small venue, um, but it was really important. And it was important, and not just because it was fucking great to hear the music, but some of the things that Chuck D said that night really resonated um, about, you know, the notion of a homeland, the notion of like, there's a place in the world where you can go if you're Irish and the names over the buildings and the businesses are Irish names. And you can kind of, you know, relate to that. Whereas for African-Americans, there is no place like that. And uh, I remember that really stuck in my mind. I also remember Flavor Flav saying, um, I thought, you know, from the perspective of where we are, we thought you guys were just all lucky charms and leprechauns. (laughs) And we got here and it's not lucky charms and leprechauns. And we'd be like, holy fuck. But, um... You know, obviously, P were you know, P were and continue to be really in many respects. Um, Chuck D is really still a very important sort of sort of figure in the culture. Um, somebody who's continued to have an important voice. Um, and I guess you know, like, I mean, I was into music. Really, I mean, I remember. I mean, the first thing that really kind of landed um, was the era of like white lines. I remember there was a, a record with 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 this using the speeches of Malcolm X called No Sellout, um, which was like, you know, whoa. And you have to imagine, you know, Ireland in this moment, you know, in a sort of post-punk moment, like 80, 
384 post hunger strikes. Very fucking grim. I mean, very grim. 30% unemployment, fucking 30, 40,000 people immigrating every year. Half the country can't even field a fucking Gaelic football team because there's not enough fucking young people left in the village to fucking play. You know, it's very fucking grim. And the only thing that really made sense was like, yeah, post-punk and hip-hop. And to some degree, whatever little bits and bobs we could get our hands on of reggae, you know. And then there was, you know, I mean, there was there was definitely, you know, there was Irish groups. I mean, God bless him. Christy Moore always was a harbinger of, 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 of protest and truth and, and shit like that. But, uh, you know. That was, you know, that was the, it was those days. It was difficult to get things from outside. If you met somebody that knew about Public Enemy, for example, you were like instant fucking friends and shit because it was hard, you know, you, you, there was no internet. <laughs> there was no, you know, just type it into the box and it'll pop up. That didn't exist yet. Um, so yeah, you would go to people's houses because they had a record because you wanted to hear. If someone had the Bad Brains record, yeah, you could take two buses and travel across Dublin to fucking go to their house and listen to the record. Because that's what you had to do to fucking hear it, you know. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a completely different time, obviously. And wasn't that different when I went to the States, to be honest. You know, when I went to the States, there was so much fucking ignorance around what hip-hop was, who was making it, the levels of sophistication. Everybody was hung up on the violence and the misogyny. And, the, you know, and it's not that that wasn't there. Clearly it was, but it wasn't the only thing driving it. Um and it was interesting to me because, you know, I didn't realize what it meant to go to CalArts, for example. But CalArts was a private university and a very expensive private university, um, which meant that it was driven really by just daughters, sons and daughters of rich people. And I'd never seen rich people, to be honest. I mean, not to fucking sound weird and naive or whatever, but like I left before the Celtic Tiger and... Rich people was a very small group of people that lived in very exclusive areas of Dublin, and I didn't know any of them. Um, you know, and Limerick, I guess there was a few rich people, but I didn't know any of them either. Um, so to be around that culturally and everything was just a fucking trip. I felt very homesick and somehow fallen into hip hop. You know, I often say like, when I, I mean, being homesick is a, it's really a sickness. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not some kind of turn in the language where you were, you know, where, where we use the word sick. It really is sick. I mean, it's like a kind of depression sometimes depends on how it hits you. Um, but it can suck the life out of you. You can just become what the Brazilians call it, saudade. You know, you just have a sense of longing for something that feels like it's the, I guess it's the way that, you know, people, people talk about this notion of comfort food, but it's just so you, you can consume something and it can make you feel relaxed. But imagine if it's like comfort everything where it's like everything seems familiar. You don't have to double think about everything. You don't have to be on guard all the time. And that's somehow what home means. And when you, that's completely taken away from you. You, ent you enter into this kind of state of kind of, you know, it's like a different state of being. And I suffered tremendously from this. Don't talk about this too much, but the best way to fucking get over it for me, the, 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 the healing was that I would go digging for records because I could find great soul, jazz, funk, disco, hip hop records for incredibly fucking cheap. And I could not do that in Ireland. 
And the idea was if I ever had to go back to Ireland, at least I'd be able to bring something to here that wasn't here. Now, of course, it all changed. But I was what I was actually doing was I was educating myself and finding a new kind of language to allow myself to find a new kind of home and to build a kind of community that I could consider being similar to home, but amongst the community of people around that kind of music. And that's what happened, basically, you know. Um, I ended up becoming friends with a bunch of diggers. And then those diggers made records, and then those records became, you know, successful and kind of changed the culture. And I was, you know, I mean, I just... And I just, I don't know, keep rolling the dice, follow my heart, follow my ears. And those ears led me to, you know, to want to come come here and work with Denise Chyla. Boom, here I am, you know. So I'm privileged enough by now to where I can actually, you know, have the resources to be able to do these kinds of things. I don't have to wait to be invited. If I want to go, I can go. But basically that's how it worked, you know. I mean, that was the, the dream for me was to be able to, have a kind of independent practice, wasn't entirely reliant on a music industry that was in flux, and to be able to make work that was supportive of the kind of music and culture that I'm interested in, believe in, and subscribe to. So, yeah. I find what you said about crate digging very, very fucking relatable, because I find a lot of solace in records and vinyl as well, especially because uh, I got the opportunity to work in a record store for the summer. And I find a lot of solace in that because I feel like there's a certain vibe you get from like buying records and shit like that, and especially listening to vinyl as well. And I have massive fucking respect for you and like Stevie Granger, Unseen Music, Na- Naive Ted for bringing like hip hop to kind of Ireland and stuff. Because uh, especially especially back in those days, I didn't grow up in those days or nothing. I wasn't born until two thousand seven. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but um, but like that really just paved the way to how people like me. Because now it's really accessible for me. I can literally just look up uh Dublin rapper on YouTube and I could get like 13,000 results and stuff well back then you would have to go to like you were saying your friend's house you would have to get like two buses Dublin rappers with people you could count on one hand you know I mean scary era basically you know um, they're not even from Dublin I don't think but you know, a few of them are from Kildare or whatnot. but shout out to Rira and Mech but um, it did exist you know, we built these kinds of communities. I mean, it does happen. I'm still fucking in shock. You said 2007. I mean, what a fucking... No wonder I didn't bring Guinness. Um, <laughs> I'm here sitting talking to a 15-year-old about digging 14. for records. You're 14? Yeah. Fuck. 15 in five months, yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. You don't know nothing about digging records, boss. But Man, <laughs> I, I, you have a few up, records. Fair play up, to you. Up, Let me speak. I'm uh, funny enough. I met you in a record fair. How dare you say that? I'm not. Yeah. Fourteen. Jesus Christ. I, I did. I even have a record at fourteen. I don't even know if I did. I might have had one record at fourteen. Seriously. Um. I certainly. We were only just getting a record player in my house when I was fourteen. We had cassettes. Um. And I was definitely a cassette. You know, I would put the cassette recorder up next to the radio and try to record songs. Yeah. But um, no, I mean, it's a different. But I mean, that that's also the reason why I'm here in the sense that it's like, yeah, we need to cultivate this. Like we need to cultivate 
the kinds of practices where people like yourself are fucking interested in engaging the culture. Otherwise, it doesn't last. Otherwise, you know, we become, we, we end up on the fucking, you know, trash heap of history, quote unquote. But you know what I mean? Like, it, in the end, you know, it's funny, man. Like, I remember when I was studying jazz, I remember somebody asked a really dumb question of the teacher. And they said, uh, you know, um, how, how do you, who do you think is the most important uh, jazz musician in the middle of the 20th century? And the dude says, you know, it's like, it's a really stupid fucking question, but depends on the rubric. And he was like, to me, the most important rubric, and I, I, I still subscribe to this, is how many people did he impact or she? And so if you were to go by how many people were impacted, the most important jazz musician in the middle of the 20th century would have to be Charlie Parker. Why? Because everybody after Charlie Parker tried to play like Charlie Parker. You know, other people might have... Now, did Charlie Parker have hits? Was he like Nat King Cole? No, he was not. He was not. Was he like Frank Sinatra? He was not. Was he like fucking Stan Getz or fucking Glenn Miller? Or Elvis. Or Elvis. No, he was not. But is he the most important? Yeah, you could definitely make that argument because he, why? Because he absolutely fundamentally changed the way everybody did it afterwards. And that's the fucking responsibility, basically, culturally, is that, yeah, you end up in a better, you should be have more records than I had when I was 14 because that's what, now we know it's working. You know what I mean? Like, that's the way it's supposed to work. Mind you, I also need you to understand it is a fucking great privilege Fair play to whoever is fucking putting the money in your pocket, whether they're giving you a job or whether it's your parents for actually affording you the, the, the this possibility, you know, because this is fucking great. Not everybody gets to do this. Yeah. So, you know, what I mean, this is a, there's, a, there's a real education in this. You can read, you know, even that crate you have there. You really sit and study them records, man. You can fucking learn a lot about the world in ways. I mean, you listen to that Bad Brains record closely and really think about what his HR is talking about. You could learn a lot. You know yeah, what I mean? Dude, uh, here, I take the mic yeah. yeah, I must say I'm very privileged and grateful that I have all this shit and have all this knowledge from all this all this music stuff as well. But but like to be honest, that's I only spend my money on records and music equipment. But um yeah, uh we're gonna play another record here, but before I say anything about kind of the Irish hip hop scene and stuff, I went to JPEG Mafia live in early april of this year in the academy and it was kind of great because you had every aspect of every hip-hop scene in ireland in that place i mean like i only found out on before we played uh, i only found out recently the guy next to me at the whole gig massive shadow was e the artist and then jpeg mafia himself threw me out a water bottle and i let i let e drank it and i had no clue who he was and he's literally my favorite artist in the country at the moment so i find that so funny that uh, that happened also dre morgan was there he actually sent in a question we'll do that at the end uh we'll answer the two fan questions we got in but um <laughs> but uh yeah uh i'm pretty sure amy would love was there massive shout out to him uh he gave me one of his hoodies recently massive respect um also made loads of new friends there and stuff and like shout out to F F uh jelly truck as well they're part of this hyper pop group called six impala shout out to them but yeah, anyway, we're going to play another record here. What's this one be? Well, I'll, um, I'll, I'll talk about this now when it's played. Yeah. 
Shout out to Denise, that's one of her songs. Uh, but now we're going to play an Arses with Amuba Love Song. And this is, I don't know if it came out this year, but it's probably my song of the year. But yeah, here we go. <laughs> Doritos, Cheetos, and Fritos, nigga. Alhamdulillah, I'm soft spoken, that's a lie. I'm humble a lot, so stop smoking, not guitar. Yo, jumble the thought. My mind's hoping I can keep up with the bustling bop. <laughs> Holes in the pocket like socks, the Johnny's a lost Hoes see the cocky and drop, they motives are rock Slurp season, sloppy jalopy, the mommy on top She bossy, she bought me the jock, she saucing them up Oop, ah, whoopsie, Lil, what's your name? Don't turn the woo-ha, gushy So baby, what's your man? You playing games, huh, rookie? Lil Mac gon' knock a nigga brain out they truck fit Nigga, what you say? Yo, keep my name out the fuck The whole party hot, but the fit freezing The water made a wine, now she call me Jesus 
it's still corpse season Stepping on necks while you think the monarch's squeaking I've got famine fans Cause niggas can't tap from 6'6 six, six arms length Judo in the foot, you hear the flips I slam If the rhyme is your head, I bet the kick will land I'm off the seco cause I'm high class Bitch set Rivero, keep your wine glass I'm off the seco cause I'm high class Old nigga do old nigga shit. Old nigga do old nigga shit. Old nigga do old nigga shit. This nigga got a fedora. The baby girl who bald head ass look like Caillou. Hey, yeah, she rocking crazy lots like Eric Abadu. And she ain't even thank me for the head out of Bayou. You acting like you turn into your hearing ain't dial. This is hogwash, tired of your nonsense. Yeah, you got some bomb toppers, you ain't got no conscience. You don't want your mind thoughts, you tired of my five cents. You can take a long walk, cause I don't want your vibes there. But she slapped like the snare in Ohio I'm going young, she fought, prepare for the piping I don't care if she might plan I said I don't care if she might plan Damn, you know one of them girls, yeah She got that Glock Glock 9000 Make a nigga like risk it all, you know It's, it's a problem I'm easily perturbed It's corpse So massive shout out to the artist and Amu with love uh, legends and also shout out to these local legend as well representing Nimerick so yeah um, so it's kind of cool that those scenes are coming out so uh, obviously I'd like to ask you as well about Brazilian time yeah, yeah. So, uh, also this interview is kind of like Brazilian time we, this is all improv <laughs> all these questions yeah. I made up on the spot <laughs> yeah but um, uh, so so all the rec- clips and stuff but they were all recorded around 20 years ago now they were all filmed in 2002 and it didn't come out until yeah. kind of 2007 yeah I mean the original concert was 2002 um, part of the Rebel Music Academy in Sao Paulo um, but then Eric and I continued our kind of investigations in Brazil and um you know, we kept shooting basically and talking to people and thinking about Brazil and the relationship to Brazilian music. Um, with and went back to Brazil with Otis Madlib and fucking Dilla and you know, and then you know, J Rock and Babu and all of them went back on their own, DJed, and it, it really, you know, I mean, the original plan with Brazil in time was that it would be a bridge, um that would allow us to build relations with the scene in Sao Paulo from LA and to encourage people from Brazil to come to LA and encourage LA heads or North American heads to sort of break the imaginary equator border and go and, you know, investigate what was going on there. And, and in that respect, it was actually really, really successful. Um, in the in the in the fact that there's been a shit ton of, you know, projects, music, films, you know, shows that continue till today, you know, I mean, and it allows for things like um, you know, Dom Salvador, Arthur Verocai, Joao Donato, Joycey, um, and all kinds of other younger groups. 
um, Marcelo de Dois, all kinds of people to come to the States and play in front of not just Brazilian audiences. And then obviously it allows for people like, you know, Mad Lib and, and people like that, and even, you know, Mochila to go to Brazil and be able to do things there in front of audiences as well. Um, you know, and I, I don't know, you know, it's, it's not, it's a weird way to think about films as potential cultural bridges, I guess. But that was the original plan and it kind of worked out. And I see you pulling the Doom record and it's good to know that, you know, the Doom record, a good amount of that Doom record was made in that hotel room that you see in the film um, to cassette. Uh, that's a very fancy looking yeah. MF Doom record. Yeah, the sleeves. I play a song off it. Um, but you know, I mean, the, 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 that's just you know, that's 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 how that's how it went down. Oh, you gonna pick the song and shit? Yeah, yeah. What song? The best Doom song. Uh, I'm, I'm straight up saying this is the best Doom song, Rhinestone Cowboy. I disagree, but sorry. Well, what's your favorite Doom song? I got a few, but Rhinestone Rhinestone Cowboy is cool. Rhinestone Cowboy is fucking great. Well, it's got so much quotables though. Like got more stuff with a whole Yeah. Sol quotable, bro. Yeah. Alright. This joint is the This joint might be like my favorite outro to an album ever. This is a fucking Rhinestone Cowboy. Great stuff. Yeah, this is this is good. Great stuff. <sighs> oh yeah. Hold a cold one like he hold a old gun Like he hold a microphone and stole the show for fun Or a foe for ransom Flows is handsome Holes in tandem Anthem Random Tantrum Phantom of the Grand Ole Opry Ask the dumb hottie Mask pump shoddy Somebody stop me Hardly come sloppy on a retarded hard copy After rockin' parties he departed in a jalopy Watch the drop top poppy known as the grimy, limey, slimy, try me, blimey Simply smashing in a fashion that's timely Mad villain dashing in a beat rhyme crime spree We rock the house like rock and roll Got more soul than a sock with a hole Set the stage with a goal To have the game locked in a cage Getting shocked with a pole Overthrow it like throwing over a biscuit A lot of bitches think he's overly chauvinistic let go his dick if that's the case Rats were a waste, there's more cats to chase Dogs, he got it like new powers Woke up, broke, spit the shit in a few hours Sheesh, been on least since the Glee Club Had your fam saying, please make me a dub Well, since you asked kindly Where he been behind the mask, who can't find me? You're blind, in the wine zone Leave your mind blown when he shine with the nine He's a rhinestone Cowboy No, 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 enough. Goonie Google, Looney Cuckoo, like Arika knew off Muzu Review. But who knew the mask had a loose screw? Hell could hardly tell, had to tighten it up like the Drells and Archie Bell. It speaks well of the hyperbase, wasn't even tweaked and it leaked into cyberspace. Couldn't wait for the snipes to place, at least a track listing, bone print typeface. Stop for a year, come back with thumbtacks, pop for the beer. We're hip-hop sharecroppers, used to wear flip-flops, now rare gear coppers. He's in it for the quiche, you might as well not ask him for no free shit, capiche? Oh, my aching hands, from raking in grams and breaking in mic stands. Villain, 
smile, stun your chick While he put herself in your shoes, run your kicks You heard it on the radio, tape it Play it in your stereo, your crew will go ape shit Raw lyrics, he smells them like a hunch The same intuition that tells him spike the punch Curses, he's truly worshipped With enough rhymes to spread throughout the boundless universes Let the beat blast, she told him wear the mask He said you best shoot ass Made a fine chrome alloy, find him on the grind, he's the rhinestone cowboy. Sometimes they were comedic or relentless. They were the foes of society, whether fighting the local sheriff or a secret agent. Frequently they mirrored our times, the gangster villains which rival real newspaper headlines of the present day. Collectively, they are the components which have fueled nightmares for decades to come. Like villains. rip do man rest in peace uh but yeah uh i know you did the director of photography with banksy for uh exit through the gift shop what was that like kind of working with him <laughs> uh, i knew banksy for a while at that point i just finished brazil in time and uh he came to la and was talking about doing um you know he had an idea for a film and uh it has a very very elaborate and very long story but Basically, Banksy is, you know, uh, one of the most important artists of our time. Uh, I don't think there's any ifs, whys, or buts about that one. Um, and somebody that I certainly fucking admired a lot and learned a lot from. And somebody who, yeah, fucking changed my life, you know, in, in material as well as conceptual ways. Um and certainly, you know, our crew from our association with him certainly didn't didn't hurt us. That's for damn sure. Um, so yeah, so it was it was a fucking really yeah, it was a fucking amazing experience. Getting nominated for a fucking Oscar too was kind of goofy, but anyways. Uh, I know many people will get pissed if I don't ask this, but I don't really want to ask it. But I'll just ask it anyway. Did you get to see what he looked like, or? How the fuck do you How do you work with somebody You don't they get to see What they work like You get to see what Doom look like I was, Yeah dude I got to see Doom too And Banksy man Come on Crazy really Yeah No shit Yeah man I seen what they look like And It's like Yeah I mean obviously uh, With KMD as well Obviously Doom showed His fucking face and stuff But also respect people's privacy Like don't be being a dick and you know Andy Warhol said this shit everyone's famous for 15 minutes and Banksy's answer to that was yeah everyone's fucking anonymous for 15 minutes and that's the fucking truth we everyone we here we are in the fucking world of selfies bro and people who have mysteriousness and have fucking anonymity are the heroes not the fucking dummies with the fucking most amount of followers believe that Truth, truth. Uh, I know you said with your, you did an interview back 
earlier this year with the Department of Foreign Affairs. Uh, <laughs> and you were saying, what, what is better so far, this interview or the... No, 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 no shit, no shit, yeah. Uh, get you blacklisted from the... Secrets, yeah. Yeah. Secrets yeah. Are out. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but you were saying you were getting... I've only recently got back into movies. I used to be a massive film buff before uh, COVID happened, but then Netflix took down all my f- favorite fucking films I was going to watch. But also, fuck Netflix as well. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Torrent that shit up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pri- privacy all the way. But, um, but no, no, no. If you're going to prior do do it safely <laughs> if, if, but yeah 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 wear a condom <laughs> but um you were saying you were interested in japanese new wave films most specifically woman in the dunes yeah. uh like does any of those kind of films uh have an influence on your photography uh also i want to give another shout out as well to autumn mcnamara they've been giving me great kind of japanese 1920s to 60s horror and like man like uh, but they recommended me um, this. They recommended me this one, and it was from 1923. And the di- it kind of became a piece of lost me- media. I forget the name of the movie. Fuck, but uh, I'll post it up on my story or something uh, whenever I get it. But it, it was this piece of lost media, and it was made in 1923. And then 40 years later, the director found it in his warehouse, and he put it out. And it's like the most. It's super ahead of its time in his way. It's kind of like. It's a little bit like a racer, but it's a silent film and it's more of a horror kind of way. Um, but yeah, shout out to Autumn and uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, Japanese New Wave cinema is, it really begins in the late 50s and goes all the way through to sort of the mid 70s. But um, yeah, I had never seen, I mean, I'd seen a bunch of films, but I'd never seen Woman in the Dunes. And um, if you get an opportunity to see it, I mean, it's top five for me. Um, it's all shot in a bunch of sand dunes, which if you know anything about camera, especially analog camera technology, sand is the fucking enemy. And to sh- to, I mean, just physically to fucking shoot a whole film in the fucking sand to begin with is fucking nuts. But then when you see it, I, I don't know that I've ever come across a film that actually generates the notion of what it would be like to live inside a sand dune. Um, in the way that this film does. I mean, the photography is incredible. The script, the kind of allegorical nature of it, the way that it, it's almost Shakespearean. The acting is bananas. It's black and white, but man, it's very beautiful. And the director, you know, is the son of of, of a inventor of a new kind of flower arrangement in Japan, which is a very serious business. And I think he made five or seven films and then his father died and then he quit cinema altogether and went, took over the father's business as a flower arranger. So if you can imagine the kind of care and carefulness and kind of high aestheticism of flower arranging in Japan and imagine that transformed into cinema and shot in sand dunes, New York good way along to understanding what that film was about but yes did it have an influence on my photography yes did it have an influence on my fucking cinematography yes did it have an influence the way i understand the world yes did it have an influence on the way i actually think about things like cinema or spending an hour and a half in the dark absolutely yes as great works of art should do so yeah yeah and uh 
yeah i don't know i i always love finding like really really cool really weird scenes coming out of japan i've i've been really coming up so with like japanese noise rock if, Sure. Yeah, like especially bands like Le Rally de Nudi, I think that's how you say it, but I'm pretty sure there's an emphasis on the rally. It's supposed to be like rally or something like that. But uh, yeah, they're fucking, and I love how there's they're kind of one of those bands that have like very little info on them, but there's also like a shit ton of stories about them at the same time. I mean, like their first bass player took part in like the biggest Japanese plane heist in history. Which and I'll send you a video on it after. It's really cool. They were trying to they were trying to get to Cuba, but the plane the plane was too. They didn't have enough fuel, so they tried to go to North Korea, and they ended up in South Korea, disguised as North Korea by the Japanese government. And it's just fucking a mad story. And I'm pretty sure the remaining people who survived, the attackers, they were able to get free. And they're living in North Korea now or something. It's a mad story. But also, I've been really coming up obsessed with this band called Midori. They're kind of like a jazz, hardcore punk band that broke up around 10 years ago now. They're brilliant. Um, from Osaka. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. What? Uh, we're going to go to the fan questions here. We only got two, but we got two great ones from uh, two really good people. I know. Shout the fuck out to Mankey. Mankey's an absolute local legend. And he asked, he wanted to ask you this. Uh, ask about Brazilian time. That's what we did. But he wants to ask you, when is the subsequent Malib gig happening in Limerick? I mean, Malib played in Limerick. I mean, that's the yeah. thing. Malib got in a fucking, nearly got in a fight at Supermax on fucking O'Connell Street. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, when Brazil in Time came out, we did a tour. Um, and, you know, if you, if, you were, if you weren't there for that, you kind of fucking missed it. But... It was the two drummers from Brazil, uh, Mamau and Joao Paraíba, that are in the film. It was uh, Madlib, J-Rock, and DJ Nuts. And it was the rest in peace fucking foundation of, of Afrobeat, uh, Tony Allen. And they all played in the granary, not inside, but outside, in that kind of outside area. It was absolutely fucking slammed. And it was a very crazy, surreal night. Um... I don't know whether Dolan's passed on it. I don't remember uh, the dude's name. Joe Clark was the promoter. Um, we were brought to Ireland by Choice Cuts, which celebrating 20 years last year, I think. Um, the people that own the Sugar Club. And yeah, Madeline was Madeline wandered Limerick. We, we, we went up the town after the gig and fools went into Supermax to get chips and someone tried to step to Madlib, dude. That really happened. Yeah. That's the best story I've ever heard. That really happened. Madlib, Madlib. Yeah, Madlib almost got in a fight. It was crazy. It was like, <laughs> Do you think he'll ever come back? Or? Um, you know, we, we, we were in Dublin a few times. I mean, we brought him to Dublin a few times. Um, I, I don't see why any, any reason why he wouldn't come back. He doesn't, he's not, you know, I mean, the thing with Otis, is it's not really a live thing, you know. Um, he's not super comfortable playing live. He's a very unique and 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 quite strange DJ who you know really explores the outer reaches of DJing in terms of feeling free. Um, he don't like rapping live, yeah. so you know. So it's kind of a weird situation. I was like, well, what, what what can he do? But of course, people absolutely fucking adore him, um, and you can feel the freedom and and you can feel the kind of imagination and the curiousness. Um, in his on his records or whatever, 
But yeah, that's it's a, it's a funny shout outs to Mankey. I seen him this morning up a canteen. Now nah, we don't need to play that shit right now. You can put that in afterwards. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, man. I mean, it's 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 funny. I I was here at Ormston a few weeks ago, and he told me that prison time changed my life, and I was just like, what the fuck? Um, I mean, it changed mine too, but uh, different ways and many years apart. And it's beautiful to see somebody um, of Mankey's, you know, someone like Mankey completely inspired by something like that, that, yeah, someone from here fucked around and made, you know, this feels, feels like some shit. Yeah. Oh yeah. But that's the fucking maddest thing I ever, uh, Malib almost got into a fight in Supermax. But, um, also another massive shout out from someone I know who's at the Peggy gig, Dre Morgan. He's kind of like a music journalist guy documenting hip hop and Ireland. Massive shout out to Dre. But he also asked him this really good question. So what breeds your uh, artistic long your longevity career wise as as an artist and whether that be photography or music? Um well longevity is like fucking man, do I got a choice in this shit? I'm not trying to fucking retire or nothing. Um, but I understand the question. Um, I think the trick is to to not to absolutely and utterly commit to the notion of uh, following the muse. And I don't mean that as something or some, you know, or somebody. I mean, following the that what that cultivating a desire to find and to follow things that make your heart beat faster and don't be afraid of it. Um, and that, you know, whether that's, you know, I'm a piano or whether that's Mad Lib or whether that's music from the 1950s in Ethiopia or, or whether that's, you know, whatever that is, whether it's music, whether it's Japanese cinema, whether it's, you know, fine art or whatever, um, to obsess over it, to support it, become fanatical about it, to talk to other people about it and allow the influences to wash over you um, and keep yourself open to the world and just continue to be committed to the notion of creativity, you know. Um, that's what makes me happy. And if I'm not doing it, I get anxious and feel unhappy. So, you know, uh, it's not, it's just, I guess uh, Octavia Butler said this thing one time, and if you don't know who Octavia Butler is, look her up. It's very, very, very important. Um, but Octavia Butler said, how do you know? You know, somebody asked her, how do, how, you know, how do you know if you're a writer? And she said, well, it's kind of like you don't have a choice. You really can't imagine what it would be like to not write. And I feel like that's, you have to cultivate these kinds of feelings in yourself. Like you have to cultivate passion be driven away from money, away from ease, comfort, away from stability and into things like creativity, thinking about new ways to understand things and find your happiness there. And then you'll never, you'll never have a reason to stop. You'll never have a reason to even, I don't even consider myself as having a long career, to be honest with you. You know what I mean? Look at fucking Pharaoh Saunders. Look at fucking Sun Ra. You know what I'm saying? Look at Roy Haynes. You know what I'm saying? Look at these people, man. They, there's only one way to this. is It's not just like something you do. This is We live this. So I, I hope I have a fucking long, 
life, <laughs> you know, and it'll be creative. Don't trip. So, yeah, man. But thank you for the question. Much appreciated. Yeah. Thanks again, Dre. Also, this is probably the last question now, but I'm pretty sure the most thing people might know you for is probably your cover for introducing. But how did you score that gig? Because I know I know it was uh, shot in Rare Records, which unfortunately closed down recently. I was actually I found this so funny that like I mentioned you back to two interviews ago and then I ended up interviewing you now in my Panjiko interview. But um, like, how did you kind of score it? Because it's become such an iconic photo, not just with like music, but it's just been iconic itself. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, it's a story I've told many times. I mean, I was friends with Josh and he's DJ Shadow and he was another guy not super, especially in that time, not super comfortable with his image being made, not super comfortable with the industry, was definitely had some issues around, you know, not feeling completely comfortable being marketed or whatever. And, uh, yeah, we had a kind of, we had a good relationship. We had, we had a, we shared, we had, there was a lot of commonalities between us in terms of our understanding of the music, our serious, the seriousness with which we brought to the music. And I was working with a bunch of underground artists from the good life that he really admired. And he kind of, I remember he said to me once, man, if you're good enough to work with the freestyle fellowship, you're good enough to work with me. And I never, you know, it's not like, you know, I mean, I've worked on so many fucking projects and it's not like it's super obvious. Oh, this is going to be a classic. You know, anytime I've ever thought that it turned out to be wrong. I'm a fucking dead ass honest. Anytime I thought, oh, man, this is about to be it. It turns out to be not it. And uh, so, you know, we, 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 I'll tell you one thing that it was, which was, you know, we, we, we went and made the photos and. It's one of the few times where I get the proof sheets back and it's fucking obvious straight away which one is the cover. And it's not the, you know, I mean, it's it's like anti-iconic. I mean, that's the joke of this is like, it's the reverse. It's like, what do people look like when they go to buy records? That's the cover. And it's like, that's like so fucking wrong. And it's not even, we didn't dramatize it in any way. The lighting is from the, from the fluorescence overhead, the fucking cat's out of focus. You know, it's this kind of weirdly mundane, ordinary photograph of two guys in a record store. One of them is blurred. But there's something about the filling of it that really speaks to the practice of digging. And digging is such an important part of music. And one that it never really, you know, it's don't ever think that digging didn't exist or that digging began with people like DJ Shadow. It did not. If you, there's a great documentary made by an Irish guy called uh, Blues Britannica, and it's about the influence of the blues on rock music in England in the 60s. And there's this interview with Keith Richards, and he talks about taking three buses across London to meet this guy, knocking on his door. This guy has no idea he's coming. It's not like he had a telephone. Knocks on the door. Hey, Jerry, how you doing, Jerry? You Jerry? Yes, I'm Jerry. Yes, I am Keith. Act. Uh, Somebody, Jerry, somebody told me you have a copy of Lightning Hopkins, blah de blah, whatever, whoop de whoop, rare blues record. And the guy says, as a matter of fact, I do. He said, would you like to hear it? And yes, I would, Jerry. Come on in. Would you like a cup of tea? And he sit there, have a cup of tea, listen to the record like three times. Maybe he plays him two or three other things. Thank you so much for coming by. It's been fucking delightful. Gets back on three fucking buses across London to go home. Well, if that's not digging... 
Which I mean, it's just not digging in the sense of you don't walk away with the record, but you walk away with the experience of having heard the record, which is the other part of digging I think people don't understand. It's not how many records DJ Shadow has. It's how many records has DJ Shadow listened to and looked at to get to the amount of records that he has is the important question. And I think that's the thing, especially when you consider the moment we're in now where it's like, you know, you can dig digitally, you know, but it's like how well developed are your ears? And that's the difference between Mad Lib and the fucking Smithsonian. It's like, I said this before, you know, it's like, does the Smithsonian have more records than Mad Lib? Yes, it does. Who do you want to hear a mixtape by? The Smithsonian or fucking Madlib? Well, I don't think this is, there's no question. You want to hear the mixtape for Madlib? And that's, that's what this is about, you know? It's about being open, allowing yourself the time, affording yourself the luxury to listen and listen deep and listen hard and really think about those relationships and then go fucking build, you know? So, yeah, introducing, man. It's funny, man. I did that in 1996, dude. It's like fucking nearly 30 years ago. Yeah, it turned 25 last year. Yeah, it turned 25. Yeah. You're not even, you won't be 25 for another fucking 11 years, bro. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. This record is fucking nearly twice as old as you are. So, this, this, yeah, no, I mean, it's a fucking amazing record. It's just crazy to be, you know, but it's all good. Anyway, man, look. That's that. We out of here. Thank you to Armston, Mary, everybody. And thank you, brother. It's been a a pleasure. You know what I mean? It's been a a long time since I was interviewed by a fucking 14-year-old, but I'll get over it. Do you want want to play some records before we go? Uh, No. I mean, I'll drop one for you. Just a special one that you can't find online. I'll I'll pull something for you. All right. Bless the bees and the birds